Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter, the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, hello. Welcome to Garden Success. This radio show exists for you to call in and ask questions that are of interest to you. Whether it's, you know, what's a good tomato to plant? By the way, don't do that right now. Uh, Or if it is, you know, something related to diagnosing or identifying or any kind of thing like that. That's why we're here. Now, you can call me at 979-845-5689, or if a photo would be helpful in helping me answer your question, then you can attach a photo to an email at and send it to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. I try to answer those on the air each Thursday. Uh, so if I uh, if it's one that I have to kind of type and reply with, uh, uh, I will do that. But generally, I try to answer those on the air, and the reason is just the time constraints of everything. Uh, but garden success at tamu.edu. Now, when you send a photo, it's best for you to attach it to the email. Use that little paperclip symbol in your email and attach it rather than embed it. Embedding it is copying it and then pasting it into the text of your email. That is, it's just more cumbersome for me to try to get a good look at it uh, and then zoom in and things like that. So please attach them. Also, uh, make sure they're in good sharp focus. I um, I have many, many photos (laughs) that I've gotten over the years where I see the the yard in the distance in good sharp focus and what you were holding up with your hand about a foot away from the camera is all fuzzy because the camera didn't understand what you wanted to be focused on. So just check your photos, make sure they're in good sharp focus. The closer you can get to something, the better. Uh, It just helps us to better um, diagnose and and analyze what's going on. Well, uh, you know, rain's in the area, that's a good thing. Uh, We just need it to fall on each of our landscapes. Uh, and give us a little bit of a break uh, from the heat. This has been brutal. Uh, The heat uh, for this time of the year uh, has just been, what, I don't know, four or five degrees roughly uh, above average, which that's a little hot. June, not supposed to be 100 degrees for weeks on end. But anyway, that's that's where we are. Uh, That's why I always say, you know, when plants say they're heat tolerant, then uh, that doesn't really mean anything because... Plants that are sold all over the country, uh, you know, they, they may be heat tolerant in Ohio. Uh, and not that it doesn't get hot in Ohio, but it doesn't get as hot for as long and then have the intense humidity and the nighttime temperatures that are so warm. That's, a, that's something people don't think about a lot. Now, the 100 degrees during the day, that's a problem. But when it's just so hot at night uh, and plants are struggling for water, uh, they've got to open the stomates to release the gases that are the products of the photosynthesis, the making of carbohydrates and whatnot. And uh, without being able to do that, you're not going to get any, essentially, the the engines of the um, factory shut down, in a sense. Uh, They're just on hold. So uh, we just need to recognize that uh, it's our evening temperatures also. And that's true with tomato setting. You know, we can have uh, daytime. I don't know where you would go to find this particular um, 
situation, but if your daytimes weren't too hot for tomato setting, but the nighttimes were really too hot, uh, that would likely be a problem for them to set as well, because nighttime is also very important. So anyway, that's a, that's a lot about plants, and uh, I was, I'm humored by plants that are said to be heat tolerant. The, the way I like to put it is, hey, send me that plant. Let me, when I'm cooking, 4th of July, it would have been a good time, throw it on the barbecue pit, close the lid, wait five minutes, open it up, and if the plant still looks good, then that might be a good plant for Bryan College Stationery, <laughs> or a lot of Texas, as a matter of fact. Uh, but that's not always the case. Uh, something I also want to uh, mention in the, because of this heat is people have a tendency to overwater because it's so hot. And that makes sense. It makes sense that when the temperatures are warmer, the plant is going to use more water because it's using water for a number of reasons. But one reason is just for cooling, just the evaporative cooling of releasing the gas back, the vapor rather, of water back into the atmosphere and cooling off. Uh, but when it is just so blazing hot, the plant can't pump water fast enough to keep going. And you may notice your tomato plants wilt during the day and bounce back uh, in the evening hours. I've seen that on a number of different plants lately, that uh, it, they wilt and you think they need water, but there's water in the soil, because in my case, I had watered the plants and the soil was adequately moist, but they just can't keep up. And so what happens then is people see a wilted plant and they go water it. And if you continually water a plant and overwater it, especially in a clay soil that doesn't have internal drainage, uh, it, it just becomes, you know, that hole you dug for the shrub or rose you planted becomes like an underground bathtub. Uh, it's surrounded by clay and it holds water quite well. That's what makes a farm pond <laughs> is, is a clay lined hole in the ground. And uh, so when we dig holes in our landscapes, in a lot of parts, and some of you have sandy soil or loamy soil, um, I, I'm jealous of that, by the way. Uh, but for a lot of our parts, it's clay soil. And when you dig that hole, just remember, let's say you didn't plant the plant. You just filled the hole up with water. How long would it take the water to go out of that um, to, to go out of that particular hole? Well, it would take a long time, right? I mean, it would take days for it to drain. And so th the idea of I'm going to water, water, water because it's 100 degrees what that ends up doing is your roots uh, are waterlogged there and they can't get oxygen and believe it or not roots need oxygen too uh, if you want me to anthropomorphize it it'd be the roots need to breathe okay well and if you make them waterlogged they can't and they can't go through the respiration process that they need in order to be healthy and alive so uh, they begin to die and in fact we always say don't overwater a plant right but the worst time to overwater a plant is when the demands are already through the roof. I mean, you know, it's 100 degrees and the plant is doing the best it can. Well, it definitely, it needs moist soil. It needs water adequately, you know, available to the roots. But it doesn't need to be drowned in a hole. And so the, if you want to kill a plant fast, overwater it when the demands of summer are just bearing down and it's doing all it can to get by. That is a recipe for a disaster. All right. Well, that was a soapbox tirade. I don't know. 
droning on. But anyway, I it's what I see when, uh, when people come into the extension office, send me photos, give us calls, uh, and extension agents get really accustomed to the, the same kinds of questions that we run into uh, from time to time. You know, what's a good tomato? What's wrong with my lawn? What's wrong with my tree? Uh, horticulturists, uh, county horticulturists say it started with a guy in Austin, Texas, named Ted Fisher. He was the first one to say the three T's. Three T's make the phone ring. Trees, turf, tomatoes. And I would say trees and turf are about three-fourths or 90% almost of the of that three T's because that's the one that everybody worries about and, and gives us a call about. And understandably so. Well, our phone number is 979-845-5689. 845 5689 or by email at garden success at tamu.edu garden success at tamu.edu we're going to go to the phones now and talk to jennifer hello jennifer hello how are you i'm good this is i see something falling from the sky yeah isn't that amazing this is the water jennifer right yes yes (laughs) it's the water jennifer i'm Mm -hmm. just making sure yeah yeah, well, I, you know, if you know a rain dance, I would do it just to be sure, if you don't mind. I'm kind of tied up here for the moment. <laughs> we yeah, we need that rain to fall from the sky. Yeah, the, I, it's been so long since I've seen it, but it looks like there's some sort of liquid coming <laughs> yeah, from the sky, that's so that's right. pretty exciting. That is exciting. Oh, well, how are things with the water department and uh, water use, and where are we right now? Um, yeah, we are... It, we developed a dashboard this year um, in College Station where we can just, I mean, it's not for external use, but we can just internally look at it every day. And it's pretty interesting to look at the direct correlation between, you know, when we had 100 degree temperatures, Mm -hmm. that's when we started getting over 20 million gallons a day. Uh, And uh, so, yeah, the water demand has been really high. I'm hopeful that today's rain will back it off uh, a little bit. Mm -hmm. But um, Anyway, uh, yeah, I'm getting, so I'm trying to get people, I was listening to kind of what you said about overwatering and, you mm-hmm. know, when the plants are already stressed, I've been kind of trying to get people to not water during the day because there's so much evaporation, but then people say, well, when can I water because they're worried about watering overnight. Mm-hmm. I and, got you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And they, th- you know, they'll think that they're going to get brown patch or gray leaf spot or something. Yeah. Well, you know, the coolest time of the day, as you know, is kind of at the end of the night, early, early before the sun uh, comes up, as it's had a chance to cool off all night of what we would call cooling off around here. I don't consider 80 degrees cool, but (laughs) that's what it often is. So that would be the the most efficient time. You can water through the night. Um, I'm assuming most people are watering their lawn, so I'll answer from a lawn standpoint. But Mm -hmm. uh, in the in the summertime, the disease uh, gray leaf spot uh, can affect our our turf our St. Augustine, which is most people's turf grass, and uh, it likes um, uh, low light conditions, so you see it more in the shade, and it likes humidity and to stay very moist. And uh, I, one thing I say about t- gray leaf spot is if you throw a piece of plywood on your lawn and leave it there for a week, and when you pick it up, you'll see what gray leaf spot looks like because that exclusion of the sun and then the humidity of the plywood holding everything inside around the grass right. uh, really stimulates it. So that would be the only one I would worry about. But mm-hmm. when we're, you know, sometimes 
there's competing issues. And in this case, we've got the issue of overusing water. We've got the issue of not getting efficient use of your water because it's all evaporating away as you try to put it on. So I would say that overrides the gray leaf spot. Uh, yeah. Just because you water at night doesn't mean you're going to have gray leaf spot by any means. But that would be the okay. only, be the only thing you might want to watch for if, uh, if you do that. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's very reassuring as I try to get the, the word out. And I've been really trying to push people to just water two days per week instead of every day, which I mm-hmm. think a lot of people are doing. The, all of the water utilities also notice that for whatever reason, and it's been this way for years, Monday is our heaviest day. Monday. Huh. So, yeah. That's interesting. So I, I, yeah, I'm not sure why, but we just in, encourage people to try not to, you know, pick like Tuesday or Wednesday, you know, do, do, do like Tuesday, Saturday or Wednesday, Sunday mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. Well... The way I look at the the watering schedule is I think people need to water once a week. That is ultimately what you're aiming for. And if you develop a good deep-rooted grass by not overwatering, first of all, and by mowing a little higher so you can have a little more more depth to your root system also, uh, you don't have to water so much. And and I'll go along with twice a week, I guess, if someone's calling Mm -hmm. and, you know, really pushing on it. Or maybe they have a root system that's limited due to all kinds of things. You know, maybe some grubs are chewing the roots or take all root rot is affecting it or something. So I understand a little more often in special Mm -hmm. situations. But yeah, just that. But just once a week. Okay, that's good. Once a week is all we need. Do you know that I watered my yard for the first time all summer last week? Wow. I mean, I can believe it. And uh, this is sun. This is sun also. Now, I let it, I let it stress and, you know, it, Mm -hmm. it looked bad during the day, but when I came out in the next morning, if it was perked up, it's like, okay, (laughs) I'm going to hang on, you know, it's recovering and, uh, it looks good. It's dense. I mean, it's not dead or anything. I don't recommend everybody stretch it that far, but you know, I, I just to make a point, you know, and so if we're, if people are saying I got to water twice a week, well, then how do you explain my lawn? You know, uh-huh. you don't, you don't. So. Which that's, that's very good to know because as Wixen is on a two day per, you know, no more than two days per week watering schedule mm-hmm. right now, Wellburn is allowing um, up to three days per week, which is plenty. Mm-hmm. And then, but yeah, when we put the watering schedules out, the, the first thing I hear from people is, oh no, my lawn's going to die. But yep. you heard it here first, folks. Yeah, you did. <laughs> and you, you just train your lawn and it, it, it mm-hmm. can do it. And now, I'm not going to continue to not water my lawn. I'm going to water it periodically because it just seems like over time, the water volume that was there in the soil uh, just is going away. You know, there's trees that are really needing to pump a lot of water uh, and and things like that. So I think I, I think our wet spring probably got me a little further along than normal. Mm-hmm. No. So, well, well well, so you guys, uh, are you still doing any kind of, uh, you know, assisting people with uh, evaluating efficiencies of the systems or anything like that? Or is that on I hold am. for now? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely still doing the irrigation checkups. I was not able to get the um, summertime workshops together this summer like I did a few years ago. It's been okay. hard to get those going again, but I'm still doing the irrigation checkups um, and have several that I need to schedule. Um, I'll be out next week, but I'm scheduling for the week of July 17th. Okay. So, Good. Yeah, and um, definitely if somebody has a bill of like 50,000 gallons, 75,000 gallons, and we yeah. know who the, <laughs> you know who you are if you yeah. have that bill, right. then you need an irrigation checkup. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, uh, that's that's interesting. Uh, I, when I was in the Austin area, San Antonio would uh, post in the paper the biggest water users. The SAWS system is really they're they're like water Nazis. I mean, they're really into into conservation. Mm -hmm. I probably shouldn't use that term for them, but anyway. And the the top of the list it was typically Spurs basketball players. <laughs> That, I remember that. That had plenty of money to throw yeah. into the water system. Yeah. That's kind of funny. Well, it, you know, I understand people want to have a beautiful lawn and want it to look mm -hmm. good and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I guess we should also talk about watermyyard.org. Um, yeah, well, yeah, that, that covers this area. And then, but College Station participates in something slightly similar, but more localized, um, bvwatersmart.tamu.edu. That's right. But, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Same basic concept, though. It's it's weather-based uh, watering recommendations. We just had, like, Water My Yard is statewide, and this is just, we just wanted it to be specific to this area. Yeah. And, yeah. and you guys on the on the uh, BV Water Smart uh, website, uh, I like the some of the helpful videos that you have on there, and also the, just the way it's arranged. You know, there's different types of sprinklers, so what do they look like? And they put out water at different rates, and I, I find it to be real informative. Oh, good. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, we, we didn't want people to have to think about what's the distribution uniformity of my yard, what's the, you know, application rate of my sprinkler. We just, you know, if it looks like this, run it for this many minutes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's I, good. The next thing we're going to do is with the emails is put out information. Well, I'm going to try to put out information like if somebody's in a particular drought stage, um, put that in the email and then um, put in some uh, tips on how to do cycle and soak. Okay. Good. That's a that would be wonderful. Hey, could you give that website one more time? Yeah, BV as in B as in Brazos, V as in Valley, watersmart.tamu.edu. It's a partnership with uh, between the Groundwater Conservation District and the utilities and A and M, so that's why it has right. that address. Okay. There you go, folks. It's free, uh, and uh, you know you can get e I get emails on my phone from it, yep. and uh, just uh, it says you know one time I got one you need you use 0.45 inches of water this week, and so. Uh, that old standard of water your lawn an inch a week doesn't hold true all the time, for sure. No. <laughs> okay. Okay, all right. thanks. Thank you, Jennifer. Appreciate the call. Our phone number is 979-845-5689, and now we are going to go to the phones and talk to Catherine. Hello, Catherine. Hello. Um, Skip, first of all, tell me if I'm pronouncing this correctly. Crinum lily or crinum lily? The first part, the first time was right. Crinum, long yes. eye. Okay. Yes. Um, I have a pretty mature crinum lily that is in a pot. It's, I guess you'd say, a little bit crowded because I didn't remove the babies um, the previous cycle. Mm -hmm. um, it has sent up one shoot with the bloom on top. Surprisingly, <laughs> it grew like lightning. But I think it's on its tail end now. It's produced many blooms. Um, does it only put up one of these bloom? I'm calling it a shoot. I'm not sure what it is. Only one per season? Well, no. I mean, a, a crinum, it, they typically do divide like you're talking about. They produce the babies on the side, the pops or whatever. And they, you will see a bunch of blooms come out of a crinum. Not just one stalk, uh, but that you're going to see uh, that clump is going to be you know, providing a series of blooms. Now, most of them are at the same time, but not exactly at the same time. 
And the multiple blooms would be coming from the babies, or the, I'm going to call it a mother. You know, the mother bulb, you know, I've never thought about that. That is a good question. Um, yeah, I, I didn't I'm think sorry, the babies were know. big enough. But anyway, uh, it's in a pot. Um, the person who gave it to me has hers in the ground. And I asked her, I said, so isn't it going to freeze in the winter? And she said, but it always comes back. Can, is it better to move it into the ground um, and then trust that it'll come back after freezes? Yeah, it, it will come back after freezes. And uh, that it, it is better to put them in the ground. Just put them where you want them. Because uh, if you change your mind, you got a job digging those things up. And the pot, you can make it slide right out of the pot. It's pretty easy to do. But uh, we dug up a crinum uh, one time down in the Houston area. We had one that, gosh, the thing was like a volleyball side. I mean, it was huge. Oh, I swear. And we, just about needed a, we just about needed a backhoe to get the thing out of there. I'm, <laughs> oh, I'm telling you, it was, I, that right there kind of, there are a few plants that I say, when you plant them, make sure you like where they are <laughs> because moving them is, is a chore. But as far as moving them, once it's in the ground, can't I still remove the babies as they are? Oh, yes. You know, to spread it out? Yes, absolutely. You sure can. Okay. Yeah, no and problem. And does it like the, the immense hot summer sun, or should I give it some shade? I think a little late-day shade is good. Um, I have seen them, you know, just growing in a blistering hot, but they don't look good. There's kind of sun burning on the leaves and... Uh, I I would give them a little bit of a break, you know. Don't put them in sh deep shade, but just a little bit of shade would be good. There there is a there is a really uh, helpful uh, company. In fact, a Texas company here. Uh, a friend of mine went through the horticulture program when I was going through the horticulture program, uh, and it's called Southern Bulb Company. If you go online and look, they have a lot of good information on this. And I Chris Weisinger is a guy. I can tell you, Chris can answer that in a heartbeat. You know, I'm sitting here trying to decide whether they have one shoot per bulb or more. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's one, but uh, I don't know that. But he would know. And also, uh, you would be able to read up on some of the questions you had, you know, for the various bulbs. They even have a newsletter that goes out. And, you know, they're Great. promote. And if you sign up for it, they, they talk about what's blooming then. So you okay. kind of, as you go through the year, you just learn about all the bulbs of the season, and it's really helpful. Well, in general, I have not had luck with bulbs. I think I'm going to give up. Um, but this one seems to be doing fine. Well, crinums are, they're tough and easy. Uh, I would say the oxblood or schoolhouse lily with the little red trumpets is extremely tough and easy, too. Uh, that's another one. Uh, I, you see those in abandoned homesteads. There used to be a place... Uh, as you go in, uh, it's in Bryan, uh, the road uh, becomes, I think it becomes MLK. Anyway, the, um, it drove, drives past this place where there used to be a house, and there's no house now. And when fall comes and we get a rain, you see these red little trumpets pop up in the shape of a planting box. Uh, in other words, they put them around like a, a sidewalk or a porch or mm -hmm. something like that. And so there's, they pop up out of the parched, totally fried weeds and grass or whatever's in there uh, every year. And obviously nobody's taking care of those things. Abandoned. Okay. Okay. Thanks. 
Thank you for the tip. All right. Southern thank Bulb you. Company? Uh, Southern Bulb Company. Yeah, I believe that's, yes, that's how they put it. Okay. Yeah, just check it out. Thank you, Skip. You bet. Bye-bye. Our phone number is 979-845-5689-979-845-5689. I had an email from Susan uh, about eggplants, and Susan has some really cool eggplants growing in a container, a very large container. Uh, looks like, uh, yeah, a big, not a half whiskey barrel, but a good-sized container. And they hit a certain size, and then it's like they stopped growing. And instead of being nice and shiny, they kind of have to take on a dull matte appearance. You know, if you're uh, looking at glass, there's the matte type glass and the glossy glass. Well, this is a matte. And what's going on there, Susan, is they're just getting old. Uh, this is you, like anything, like a cucumber or a yellow squash or uh, any kind of a fruit-like thing, it goes past ripe. And with eggplant, when they lose their gloss, that skin becomes even tougher and it becomes much less palatable. So they have hit the stage they're going to be. Now, is the size, a lot of that is genetic, uh, depending on the type you, you plant and grow. And some of it is the confines of the container limiting plant growth and development. Um, but I think that your plant looks really good. And uh, just I'd hold on to it, too, by the way, even if those, a lot of those I think I would discard. I know you don't want to hear that, uh, but I think they're a little too far along. And then water it well, and when we get into fall, or not fall, but late summer and early fall even, the the uh, setting is going to be good, and you're, you're going to get a, ni a nice new crop of uh, the eggplants on there. Let's go to the phones, 979-845-5689. We're going to talk to Greg. Hello, Greg. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I think a while back someone called in about jujubes or however you want to pronounce this. Some, I think some people call them jujubes. Mm -hmm. Anyway, and do you know if there's any local effort on the part of A&M or whatever to uh, to work with the, the, the improved varieties or whatever? Uh, there was. Uh, we had a, a professor here who has moved on to Colorado State University to be the department head up there. And she had a whole bunch of uh, jujubes planted, uh, various types. And uh, I think that I don't know that that planting is still there, but I don't know if there's a continuation of, you know, picking a few of them out to continue to look at or not. Uh, but yes, the answer is yes, but I don't know the current status of it. I mean, it's, it's an underutilized, underrated tree in yes. my opinion, because, yes. and we have the history in that we've had it in our family since the 50s. Yeah. I don't know how a bunch of Burleson County people wound up with them, but they were on my grandparents' farm in the 50s. Mm -hmm. Here's I can tell it's the lying variety, and then yes. my dad, my dad kept it going through root sprouts, which were true because that was the there wasn't a grafted tree. Right. And so now we have them throughout the family, and I added a Lee L I, and then recently about well, say recently three or four years ago, I added sugar cane, uh, and which which limited amount of fruit I've got from the sugar cane certainly is a better fruit. I mean, I've eaten my weight in the lying and Lee, but yeah. but because that's what we had. But the, uh, the improved varieties certainly are, quote, improved. Yes. Uh, and I just would love to see them become more common for first people to purchase and whatever. I mean, they're, right. other, than a, other than a family of raccoons getting in your tree, they mm -hmm. are bulletproof from the standpoint of pests and diseases. Yeah, the only thing about uh, jujubes is the suckering that uh, can, you kind of have to deal with that, don't you, on your trees? Well, we uh, actually, that's how I give 
trees away, but also my wife just mows them down. I mean, they're an area where they're not in a garden area that you can't get to. So oh, okay. We just we just mow down the. the I mean, it's, you're right. One, two of my trees are by our, our white rock or limestone driveway, and I have had sprouts come up in the middle of a limestone based driveway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know, I know. They're they're enthusiastic about that, but that would be that would be the biggest drawback. But yeah, you're not going to worry about insects and disease as much on those. Uh, there's a there's a one called Sherwood, I believe, and one called yes. Tiger Tooth. But there's a bunch of new ones. Uh, this planting I was telling you about, they had some that were uh, way bigger than a golf. Well, not way. They're about the size of a golf ball. Which is which is substantial, yeah. And round also. Yeah, that's much bigger than a Lee or a Lang, and so. Uh, yeah, there are better varieties out there. A lot of them, you're not going to find them at the garden centers and even the some of the fruit um, wholesalers around Texas, I, I don't believe, have some of those varieties. But uh, just keep researching about it and uh, find the ones that you like best. Well, I happened to mention on a Facebook group around the Snook area if anybody had had those historically, and it was incredible the number of feedbacks. People naturally were calling them date trees because of that single seed, yep. knowing that they have no relation at all to a true date. Well, but they also kind of shrivel a little bit as they, you know, as yeah, they get yeah. older. So course, by that, at that point in time, you better go ahead and try to dry them or something because they're they become inedible, fresh. That, that's true. Wrinkled. That is true. Yeah. But but yeah, it, it, so it was surprising that they have they were spread throughout this area, but they've kind of come and gone, and no one really seemed to really know what they were. Yeah. And suspicious of them that those are edible. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you have to learn about them like anything you grow. And I think a lot of people let them go a little too far, and they were mealy uh, and not very impressive. And so they True. decided they didn't like them. And, but as you're pointing out, uh, you know, once you know what, how to pick them and stuff, it, it is yet another fruit. And if you want something Texas tough, that, that would be a jujube. Well, I just thought to mention that. I'd love to see if, if anybody. They, and I mean, I, again, I don't know if you said you're not sure right now. You feel like you're not sure about any kind of active. Yeah, I, I don't know the status of it because okay. the professor that was leading that. Uh, it um, let me let me. I'm gonna I'm gonna try something here. Just one second. I'm uh, going to the Aggie Horticulture website. I don't know if you've ever been there before. Well, but many times, and I think the last update on GGB was like 1997. Oh, is it that? <laughs> let me. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yep, that's right. Okay. We're not going to talk about that on the air, are we? <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, I would, I'll try to find out some more about them. Uh, I know a guy that's been kind of involved with it a little bit, and I'll see if I can get some more information uh, about any new varieties and may bring it up on the air if I do. I honestly... People ask me for the root sprouts to try to transfer it more than I care to try to dig up. I mean, so there's an interest once people have had them, like you said, it's an acquired taste of sorts. But but uh, they become quite popular. But if but the issue of obtaining them is the hard part. So. Yep, that's true. All right. Thank you. Thank you for the call, Greg. I appreciate that. Our phone number is nine seven nine eight four five fifty six eighty nine eight four five five six eight nine. Or by email, gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. Gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. Christian emails, he's growing butternut squash. And his squash are getting these little grubs that burrow into the squash. And he's wondering, what is that? Well, what that is, is a squash vine borer. I would say a frustrated squash vine borer. Vine borers don't just get in the vines. I've seen them in... What was it? It was something I didn't expect. It wasn't a cantaloupe. Maybe it was a cucumber. I think it was a cucumber that the larva had burrowed into. 
And the thing about butternut squash is because of the structure of the vine, it's not as prone to vine borer problems. Now they can get them, but it, it's not as prone to the vine borer problems. And uh, but they can drill into the fruit, and apparently they're maybe they're mad at you for planting butternut, and so they're going to go right at the fruit. Now, seriously, that that can happen. Vine borer is our number one insect-related squash problem. We got foliage uh, diseases that are also, you know, they're the number one disease kind of things that we deal with, the powdery mildews and some other foliage-related diseases. But, yeah, vine borer is public enemy number one. Uh, John uh, has uh, a question about uh, cleaning up loppers. Uh, when you're lo you've been cleaning trees and you got all the kind of the dirt and the goop and everything from, from you know, cutting through branches. How do you clean them? What kind of soap or, or what? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use soap because anytime you get metal wet, uh, you know, the, the issue of oxidation or rust uh, can occur. And so we avoid that. Uh, it's also a reason, this is outside your question, John, but I want people to hear this. Uh, people talk about sterilizing things in 10% bleach solution, and that will you know, prevent you spreading diseases with your loppers, but uh, bleach water really causes them to rust. And so you got to get all that off there, really clean it up and everything. So I don't just use water. I will use a brush, uh, like a metal brush, a really stiff brush to clean off the debris on the outside. And then you can use something that's more of a, a solvent type material, like a, a WD-40, because when you oil them, that will also soak into the tissues. Some people use other things to clean them, but uh, I just would use something like a WD-40. You could rub motor oil on them even, and it, it would it would protect the metal. And that's the main thing we want to avoid is is the pitting uh, of, of um, metal oxidizing or rusting on there. And by the way, if you want to sterilize your pruners between cuts or between trees, uh, I think just using the equivalent of um, Lysol uh, sprayed on them, that is made to kill microorganisms. That's what it does. And so if you're cutting into a branch that, uh, let's say you had fire blight on your pear tree and you're cutting in and you don't want to transport those bacteria and to a new fresh wound you're making on the tree, uh, then the Lysol spray between cuts. You can also use rubbing alcohol. That doesn't cause the rusting as much. Uh, but it's just kind of more cumbersome to try to have an open rubbing alcohol container and dipping your pruners and things in it. Hope that helps with that question there, John. Um, let's see, we had a question uh, that came in from um, uh, John. Uh, no, excuse me, I have the wrong question here. Uh, from Suzanne. Uh, Suzanne had, had raised uh, a question about rotating uh, the crops. And you've heard about crop rotating before where you rotate between plant families. So in the family that includes squash, cucumbers, cantaloupes, watermelons, like that, the, the, that whole cucurbit type family, that would be one that might be prone to having some of the same problems, same soil-related problems. Whereas the, um, the tomatoes and peppers and eggplant, that's in a nightshade family, and that would be a different group of problems that you might have. So when you rotate every few years or every year from one family to another, then you're able to avoid a buildup of a problem like that. The problem with rotating is most gardeners you know, they, they're not digging up the back 40 and putting a little mini farm in the backyard where rotating 
you know, is a little more practical space-wise. Most people have one or two little boxes. So what do you do? Rotate, you know, one end of the box with the other end? Well, no, no, not, not, uh, that's not going to work. It's not practical because the roots from plants are going to be all through that box. But uh, in the case of Suzanne, uh, they had uh, raised planter boxes that, and by the way, Suzanne, those are really pretty little planter boxes. Nice arrangement you got there. Uh, and so they can go from one box to another. And yes, rotating can be done. Now, I generally don't worry a lot about rotating unless I know there's a problem. And uh, for example, last year, uh, I had a lot of plants in, in raised boxed beds. And uh, one bed had some okra in it. And one okra plant had nematodes on the roots when I pulled up the plants at the end of the year. And so I know now there's nematodes in that soil. Uh, fortunately, I got all the roots I could get out, out, which helped a little bit. Uh, but now I'm not going to put a nematode-susceptible plant in that area. And by the way, that's a challenge to find plants that aren't susceptible to nematodes. There are not that many of them. Uh, you know, the corn, a grass plant, generally, uh, by nematode, by the way, I mean root, not nematode. There's a lot of different types of nematodes. Uh, so I'm going to do some rotating in that sense there. And it's not a bad thing to do. I mean, it just in general, that's good to change things out a little bit. Uh, but that's how you do it. And you rotate between uh, the different plant families. And if you go online, there's a million different things that'll tell you how to rotate uh, from one family uh, to another and kind of give you the uh, examples of what's in this family, what's in that family, kind of like I just did for two families. Uh, and it it works pretty good. Uh, that's one way that we avoid uh, dealing with some of those kinds of things. Uh, let's see, I had a, I've had a number of questions. Uh, I had one last week asking about pruning trees where the trunk has a fork in it as you go up. So just picture the a capital Y. Uh, you know, you've got the, the main little trunk and then it turns into a V at the top and goes in two different directions. And uh, how, to, how to deal with that? What, what do you do? Which one do you leave? Which one do you prune out? Uh, and that uh, is really a challenge to, for some people to d make those decisions. Well, I, I would say this. This is like the, the simplest, fast answer. Cut one or the other. It doesn't matter. And it, it kind of doesn't uh, because they're going to, either one, when it's left to be the main leader, it's going to take over and be fine. Uh, but if you are looking and one, uh, you know, is maybe leaning more to the side, not as upright or maybe a little bit smaller or, uh, I don't know, has some other issue on it. Well, you would take that one out. But the most important thing is to do it and to do it right away because every even a few months that you go by, those branches are getting bigger and bigger. And so now your pruning cut is a larger wound on the plant. Like if you wait a year or if you wait two years, and some people even wait three years to do it, well, now instead of a little tiny thing the size of your little finger you're pruning off, uh, it's something that's the size of a golf ball or maybe even larger. And, and that just makes a bigger wound. So don't delay. I mean, it... If it's hard to decide which one or it's hard to make that cut, just go out and do it. And, and you'll, you'll be better off uh, because trees that have narrow branch angles, those are weak branches. It doesn't matter if it's a pecan tree or if it's an oak tree or whatever you have. When you get a narrow branch angle, 
in time that becomes weaker. And one reason why, and by narrow, I mean, think of the letter capital V, uh, or if the if it's a very narrow V, there's not much space between the two, right? And when each one grows in diameter and gets bigger, it's pushing against the other one. And the wood doesn't heal or grow together there because it has bark. You're pushing dead bark, dead outer bark against dead outer bark. And it just gets wider and wider. And driving through Bryan College Station uh, just, uh, I don't know, a week ago, I noticed two different places where a tree branch had broken. And you could see where it broke. There was this dark black, which before it was exposed to air would have been very wet area. Uh, and it, it that had happened. It just sort of pushed itself apart. And then you get a little wind to really, you know, give some strain on that connection. It's a very, very weak connection. When a branch comes out the side at a 45 degree, 60 degree angle, something like that, that is a very strong connection. The strongest part is right where it connects on that whole branch. But when you have a narrow V, uh, that connection point is where you get a split. And when you get a split like that, it it takes forever to heal. It just... for a number of reasons, but it just takes a long time. So why am I talking about this so much? Well, make the decision. Make your pruning cuts. Learn how to train your trees, whether they're fruit trees or, or shade trees or blooming trees, uh, you know, for ornamental. Just learn how to prune them and, and then do it. Uh, there's a lot of good information out there on how to prune. And uh, when you learn how and you do it right, you end up with a strong tree. In the case of fruit trees, you also end up with a tree that early on is able to bear a load of fruit without breaking branches and things like that because you've you've created and designed it in a way that is most fruitful. The Aggie Horticulture website has a lot of good information on it, especially uh, regarding the fruit trees. You can click on like peaches and you'll see how to prune a peach tree or click on, click on pears and how to prune a pear. Uh, so I would re- recommend that you take a look at that uh, and do that. Well, you're listening to Garden Success, and our phone number is 979-845-5689, 979-845-5689, or if you'd like to email, gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Even though it's hot outside, uh, it is a time to, I'll say, uh, you know, well, first of all, plant the, the crops of summer that can take summer, and that would be like melons, cantaloupes, honeydew, that kind of thing. Uh, it would be uh, certainly okra, uh, southern peas. They, they laugh at the heat, those crops. Uh, if you have sweet potatoes, if you grow some, some sweet potato slips, uh, that means, you know, they sprout out of a potato. You can get a planting in right now, but you just need to do it before the day is over because we're right at the end of the time because they take a long time, uh, I think 120 days, I believe, uh, on those. And so you're going to need about three months uh, or four months for them to fully develop. And so uh, that that we're really at the end of that time. The same is true for pumpkins. Uh, this is a time to plant pumpkins. It's kind of like last call for pumpkin planting if you want to have a nice, large, beautiful orange pumpkin when the um, fall season comes for decorating or making pumpkin pie. Uh, the, the winter squashes and pumpkins are the same thing. So things like the butternut squash, um, kabocha squash, those storage 
types of squash. Uh, it's the same as we said with pumpkins. They need a long time to do that. And then all the greens that can take the heat, you know, Malabar, uh, Amaranth, um, uh, one called Egyptian spinach, it's, it's a type of celosia. The um, uh, Molokia is another good hot gr weather green that you can plant now. Those can all still be planted. And and uh, even a very late planting of watermelon could be pulled off now. But again, we're we're getting toward the end of all that. But when we get into Ju July, uh, a little further, then we start planting the plants for our fall season. And I'm talking about the warm season plants that are planted to ripen in fall. So, for example, cucumbers have not been doing a good job of setting lately because it's so darn hot. But uh, mid-July through mid-August is an okay time to plant cucumbers for the fall crop. They're, they're going to go 45, 50 days, 55 days, depending on the variety of cucumber. And so they have plenty of time to ripen for fall. Eggplant, uh, we were just talking about the email about eggplant. And now is a great time. It's really prime time. Uh, the, the weeks two through four of July, I guess, that, that would be a good time to put an eggplant for a fall crop. You know, and if you, uh, for example, didn't get peppers planted earlier in the spring that you're carrying through, July is a great time uh, for peppers. And uh, tomatoes also in July, uh, mid to late July, uh, just to have a little bit of a tomato crop in the fall when the weather finally breaks. Remember, the fall crop of tomatoes is not as bountiful as the, um, as the spring crop would be. Uh, our phone number is 979-845-5689. And if you uh, would like to email, it's gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. Gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. I wanted to spend just a little time. We're a little running toward the end of the show here. Uh, but spend just a little time uh, talking about uh, plants that are good for fragrance. The other day I was at a garden center and I was walking along and I just got this whiff of a beautiful fragrance and I knew what it was. It's a very distinct uh, fragrance. Uh, and I started looking where on earth is that coming from? And there were some little pots on the ground and they each had like a bloom or two on them and it was just filling the air. And that, that plant was Aloysia. A-L-O-Y-S-I-A. -A. Uh, it's called the uh, almond bush. That's another name. Uh, and it has just a wonderfully fragrant, uh, light fragrant, not overdone, uh, but very strong. Uh, that is wonderful. I wish we had a dwarf type of it. We don't. Uh, but uh, I know uh, I've been out at uh, Antique Rose Emporium when those things were blooming. And oh my gosh, it, it's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful fragrance uh, to have. The Texas Mountain Laurel. Uh, that is just beautiful. A dark green foliage and the clusters of, of uh, blue-purple blooms that are, are just wonderfully fragrant. They smell like grape bubble gum. So it's a, if you can call a fragrance gaudy, I would say Mountain Laurel is a gaudy fragrance uh, from that, that bubble gum, bubble gum uh, grape bubble gum smell. Some types of clematis, that's, that's one that can offer us a really nice uh, fragrance in the air. Uh, certain types are you know, better than others, and they, they do really well. Uh, what's your favorite? I mean, you know, our olfactory memories are some of the strongest memories that we have. I mean, do any of you remember smelling fresh-baked cookies when you went to your grandma's house? 
uh, well, that's been a long time, right? And that fragrance sticks with us. When, when we have uh, olfactory memories, it is just a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. Really enjoy being able to do that. I like plants that have a fragrant uh, foliage also as you brush past them. That oregano is more of a ground cover, but it, it certainly has a fragrant. Uh, rosemary, though, I mean, it comes up as a nice little shrub and, and has a wonderful fragrance. I like the, the uh, fragrance of Mexican mint marigold. Uh, and Mexican mint marigold is actually a type of marigold, uh, and it blooms in the late season. It blooms when the night times start getting longer. Uh, and so we'll see it bloom in late summer and early fall. Uh, the, the foliage has a strong citrus pine smell. If you can try to put the smell of citrus with the p smell of a fresh pine uh, needles, uh, that's sort of what it, it smells like. And some people don't care for it. Some people do. I happen to be one of the ones that do uh, because I think it's a wonderful plant. But I think we should plant more for fragrance. Uh, you know, we plant for the visual. How big is the flower and uh, how pretty is the flower? When does it bloom? How much does it bloom? But what about the fragrance? Because the fragrance is, is just a, a, a nice addition uh, to, to the um, uh, mix of things in our gardens. Uh, gardenias aren't really a Bryan College Station plant due to, you know, our, they're not real fond of our water or high pH. Uh, but uh, they have a wonderful fragrance. White butterfly ginger can be grown here. Uh, it, it can take a little bit of sun. In fact, it needs a little bit of sun. Uh, I'd give it some western shade, but it blooms late in the season, fall and, and uh, or late summer, fall. Uh, and that fragrance is unbelievable. It is just, I guess it, I would compare it to gardenia and, and just the fact that it's, it's just a not... Um, I would say everybody likes it. it. It doesn't have any characteristics that some people wouldn't care for. It does really good. So I would uh, plant the white butterfly. That's a hedicium. Uh, but there are many hedicums. Not all of them are white. Some of them have fragrance. Some of them don't. But if you want to be safe and have a great fragrance, the white butterfly ginger is a really good one for that. When uh, one of my children was born, we took one bloom stalk, uh, which has a cluster of white flowers on the end, and we put it in a vase in the hospital room. And nurses were coming in from the hallways following the smell, going, what, what is that smell? And uh, it, that's how strong uh, the wafting of the, the air out with those beautiful uh, fragrant blooms are. So I would consider uh, that to be something maybe as a goal for this fall. Uh, fall is the best time to get planting done. You can plant 12 months out of the year here. Sometimes are really difficult, like right now is a challenging time to plant, but we can plant. But fall is easy. And so when you have uh, perennial plants and woody uh, trees, shrubs, vines that are, that are woody, those are best planted in the fall. Perennial herbs are best planted in the fall and perennial flowers and so on. Uh, so it makes, makes for a uh, maybe a little addition somewhere in your in your landscape. Uh, just remember that if you're going to enjoy them in the summertime, our predominant wind in the summer is coming out of the south, maybe southwest. And so as you're planting that plant, maybe you have a patio, if it's possible to put them in an area where the wind is going to bl blow through that plant and toward where you sit or gather or whatever, that is even even better. Uh, one other plant that I didn't mention uh, is angel's trumpet or Brugmansia. 
And I'd never thought of them much as having a smell because I didn't have one. So I would be out during the day and seeing them and not really noticing a fragrance on them. Uh, and then I planted one in a big container and had it at the patio and went out one late day, late day, uh, maybe five o'clock, something like that, six o'clock and seven o'clock. It, it just, I was surprised. The, the fragrance caught me by surprise because it was really wonderful. So I bet you have some uh, as well. Uh, so just remember fragrance when you're when you're planting those kinds of things. Uh, Suzanne asked a question about, uh, but does the vine borer attack pumpkins and butternut squash plants? And any squash that has a large hollow stem is vine borer heaven. So pumpkins, are, that's going to be the case. Butternut, not so much. I've, I've seen it on butternut, but butternut is typically a smaller, denser stem that uh, is just um, more difficult, I guess, for the insect. Uh, and so I don't see it as much on the butternut uh, squashes. Uh, one other strategy for dealing with vine borer is if you um, have a squash that vines that will root at each node, which there are squashes that do that readily, uh, then even if the vine borer attacks, let's say, back toward the base of the plant uh, and completely severs that, that squash is dropping roots in the ground as it grows the vine. And so you sort of outgrow the vine borer that way. It's a, it's a little bit of a, a strategy, I guess, to, to try to you know, survive and have, have a good uh, productive garden despite the fact that you know, you've got the vine borer uh, there. Uh, Phyllis uh, emails with a question about how to train a crepe myrtle that has been cut back. And I can see many uh, large, for a crepe myrtle, larger trunks that were cut back to near the ground. And now there are these green sprouts uh, coming out. And they're very vigorous, very lanky, very floppy. And that's because the, that crepe myrtle, when the top was frozen last December or whatever took it out, uh, the root system is still large. And so now you've got a lot of let's say, root energy to go into pushing fresh new growth because that plant needs to get leaves in the sun in order to survive. And what I would recommend is pick, uh, if you want a single trunk crepe myrtle, then just limit it to one. Uh, you might want to stake it because the ones I see here are very floppy, very leaning and everything. Just stake it loosely. Don't tie it tight, but uh, something just to kind of hold it in place. Uh, and then as it begins to branch, you can then select the branches you want to have. So that's one of the things about crepe myrtle is training them early in their life. So you can, you know, here comes one trunk up and maybe it has branches going in two different ways and then each of those goes in two different ways and so on. Uh, but you're doing those those training cuts when they're very young uh, rather than waiting until you have to get a saw. Uh, you should not have to use a saw on a crepe myrtle unless you're taking back, uh, you know, just freeze killed, which we have some of around here. Uh, I've seen a number of them that really were hit hard by the December freeze. Uh, so that would be John uh, had that question, I believe. Uh, John or, um, yeah, I think so. Oh, Phyllis had that question. Uh, you know, we we did take a big hit on our crepe myrtles this year. And the December freeze, it's kind of interesting. We've had two very unique freezes in the last few years. Uh, in February 21, we had a freeze that was just way cold and you know almost record kind of cold uh, I think it was around seven degrees at our house uh, and so that just flat killed a lot of things that weren't ready for it uh, but it also snowed which is not normal for here right uh, snowed a lot 
and that snow acted as a blanket and things that should have been absolutely killed started coming back from the ground. I had uh, the red bird of paradise, uh, Pride of Barbados, it's called, come back. I had some uh, kufia, the Mexican heather, which is very cold tender, uh, from the base start to re-sprout because the blanket of snow helped it. Well, then last December, we had a different situation. We went, and December is, you know, about the time where we haven't had too many freezes by December typically here. Uh, and so the plants were growing actively, and then we dropped down in the teens, mid-teens, I believe it was. And plants weren't ready for that, and as a, as a result, uh, they took a hard hit. And that's what's happened to a lot of the crepe myrtles around town that you see. Um, it's just, uh, just something to... Um, uh, keep in mind, uh, there's not much you could do about it, uh, when, but, but especially when it's going to be 7 degrees or when a real cold, hard freeze is coming. But our plants survive, and we, we find ways. We continue to plant plants that are heat tolerant and hopefully have some freeze tolerant as well, uh, and you can still have a beautiful landscape. Hey, take care of yourself out there. Uh, when you're working and it is blazing hot, Heat stroke and heat exhaustion both build up on you. Texas A&M AgriLife Extension posted some stuff to the social media the other day that I was seeing is really helpful. Um, heat stroke is, is just deadly serious. Heat exhaustion is not good and is a, a big concern. I've been about halfway into heat exhaustion, a moderate case of it, uh, because we know when you're young, you're invincible. Uh, nothing's, you don't worry about that stuff. It's not going to kill me. Well, it, it, it can. And then you add to that the effect of sun on your skin, and skin damage is cumulative over the years. So take care of yourself. You know, wear a long sleeve cotton shirt or something to protect your arms when you're out working in the garden. Certainly a big wide brim hat and so on. I sound like somebody's mother telling them how to dress before they go outside. But we want to keep you around as a listener. And we'll be back next Thursday from 12 to 1 to answer your gardening questions here on Garden Success. In the meantime, you can find us, uh, the streams, as a podcast. Uh, you can uh, go to your favorite podcast supplier, or you can go to the KAMU-FM website and listen to past shows there as well. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley.